Hello there, I'm Dr. Kate Kresge, back today with Dr. Sanjay Bodraj for part two of our cardiovascular and metabolic diseases podcast. How do you improve your cardiovascular risk and how do you reverse metabolic illness if you've got it? If you're interested in learning the truth about things like calcium scores and apolipoproteins and what you can actually do to reduce your cardiovascular risk, part two of this episode is for you. Remember, if you want to learn more from Dr. B, you can head on over and sign up for the Clinical Decision-Making Guidelines in Functional Medicine series at rupauniversity.com. Click on boot camps, and then you're ready to get started. So it's an important test. It's a readily available, easy test to get, probably coming to your drugstore near you or whatever it might be. But as with anything, you need to know how to interpret it correctly. And I think that's where sometimes people get that false sense of security if they have a zero score because you can still have non-calcified plaque and that's the stuff that you really need to watch out for. But on the flip side, that's also the plaque that is really responsive to dietary and lifestyle changes, right? So eat better, exercise more, and reduce your inflammatory burden. And you see those vascular inflammation markers go down and people do great. So even if you have an elevated calcium score, it will respond to diet and lifestyle. Then you could do it again in a few years and you might see a change. Yeah, so calcium score, once it's there, it's there. So what you're aiming for with that, you rarely, I don't think I can tell you in my clinical practice, unless there was some sort of an error of calculation, I've never seen it go backwards. But what you do is you modify the slope, right? If it's getting worse like this, or worse like this, those are two very different clinical situations. So what you want to do is level off that progression. And that's really where the win is with calcium scores. Just by the by, because there is radiation exposure and x-ray, and we don't want to irradiate people's chests too much and stuff. Generally, when I had patients, I would recommend it no sooner than every five years. You're going to see the, the progression, but you're not going to get all that x-ray. There's a lot of important structures in the chest you want to deliver x-ray to if you don't need to. And then you mentioned... So you want to do it in concert with the vascular inflammation markers, but let's make sure people know which ones those are because they wrote down your list you said earlier, which one of those do you consider to be vascular inflammation markers? I think the easiest one to get a CRP. So it has to be high sensitivity CRP or HSCRP. I like myeloperoxidase, MPO, and going back to our other conversation, LPPLA2. So those three I consider, and it kind of runs with the neighbors a little bit. So if you have an elevation of one, but the other two are normal, I tend to look for other joint issues or dental issues. Dental inflammation is, in a cardiology population, a very common thing. So if I didn't see all of them elevated, but just, let's say, myeloperoxidase was elevated, I'd look at the teeth and suggest maybe some periodontal work or something like that, because there is a mouth-heart vascular connection as well. But specifically, yeah, for vascular, high-sensitivity CRP, MPO, LPPLA2, that was a blue plate special in my practice. I would just check all those together. So someone just heard you and thought, hang on a second. He's a cardiologist, not a dentist. Why is he talking about my teeth? Why would you automatically go to the mouth if someone had elevated MPO or CRP? Periodontal disease Inflammation in the mouth leads to inflammation everywhere. In the most extreme circumstances in cardiology, you can actually get infections of the heart called endocarditis from aggressive dental manipulation. I've seen probably two or three cases a year from that. And so inflammation starts in the mouth. So if we can take care of that inflammation in the mouth, you got leaky mouth, you translocate bacteria into the bloodstream, there's a thought that there are microbes that are associated with atherosclerotic disease, like chlamydia pneumonia, for instance, C. pneumoniae, was implicated in atherosclerotic plaque as well. So, you know, you want to give your body the best shot it has at being healthy. So take care of your teeth, 
see a dentist on a regular basis, get your gums checked out, because that's oftentimes a conduit. There's now clear literature that shows that oral health and that inflammation leads to cardiovascular symptoms as well. And it's such an easy thing to do, open up and say, ah. I love that you checked for that because it's so interesting. I think we know that the research is there and I'm sure the average cardiologist would nod and go like, yeah, yeah, you know, I have heard that. But translating it into the clinic so that it really starts to help your patients, I think is the key. So I love that you would actually do an oral exam. Well, and, you know, one of the things I think that I enjoyed most from this functional medicine journey that I've been on is seeing the amazing interconnectedness of everything. It's amazing when you think about the nodes and transport and, and all the different things, how they're really connected. And of course, I'm a cardiologist, so you know, to a hammer, all the world looks like nails. So for me, I see everything relating to the heart, assimilation and transport and all these different things and optimizing this. But I think that that's the cool part of functional medicine is really seeing how everything just comes together. It's like that scene in the movies where all of a sudden you've got that aha moment and everything makes sense. Oh, he's the killer because he was behind this and he has the same trench coat and I can see that fiber that they got off the car seat is from his hands, right? Like, oh my God, everything makes sense. And it was the first time in my career I was like, wow, I feel like I'm really seeing through the matrix here and everything is just connected and power hormones connected to cardiovascular health. If you asked me about testosterone and estrogen five years ago, I would have been like, I have no idea. But now you can see how they're so interconnected. Thyroid hormone, every cell in the body has thyroid hormone receptors other than red blood cells probably, but you have to be able to put these things together. And I think that conventional training, we're so used to siloing everything that we're really doing patients a disservice, right? Because unless you fit neatly into one of those silos, you're labeled as a weirdo. It's the most horrible thing that we can do as a healthcare system is alienate someone who's asking us for help. So we talked about building the team and building the village. And that's why I just love having this approach where you've got DOs and NDs, MDs, and the whole world coming together and, and really just focusing on individuals. I feel like you should have a council of health for every individual and just put them all in the same room and let's just all hang out and fix people. I want you to talk about testosterone for a second and maybe estrogen because those are biomarkers that people can add to their list as well for their doctor to check along with thyroid. But there's a thought out there that I know doing steroids and too much testosterone is bad for my heart, but I don't think we talk about testosterone deficiency or estrogen fluctuations and how they affect the heart. Do you have a, a spiel that you would use to explain to clients why those hormones matter for their heart? Well, I mean, I think that getting back to that longevity hat, part of the reason that we feel so horrible as we age is that those hormones that we've become accustomed to just go away. So it's kind of natural. And certainly as humans, we're outliving our design. We're probably supposed to die when we're 40. Now that we're older, I think we're seeing a lot of these things. And honestly, when I look back at conventional literature, I feel that a lot of it was done with agendas. There was an agenda to show that there was more horrible outcomes and there was an agenda to show. But when you then kind of look back and rehash the data, we see that, you know what, it's actually helpful for people. I'm not saying get on super therapeutic doses and have to shave your eyeballs every day, doses of testosterone, but just getting people back in a normal range, understanding the difference between free sex hormone and bound sex hormone. So sex hormone binding globulin, I think, is if we're getting like to the expanded Dr. B panel, I think sex hormone binding globulin is an important thing because as we get that visceral fat, as you become, your musculature kind of wanes off as we lower our activity, sex hormone binding globulin 
feeling goes up. So your total hormone level might be normal, but the free active form is just all gummed up. So I think that there's a lot that I've learned on the functional journey and I've become much more tolerant of it. Now, I definitely have that conversation with clients or patients, I should say, and say, you know what? The literature suggests this. I think newer literature forthcoming is probably much more reliable. But if you feel better, then that's great. And now when you're looking at some of the newer literature about normalizing testosterone and cardiovascular outcomes, it's actually pretty impressive because people are holding on to muscle mass. They're able to burn fat a little bit eat more easily. But actual vascular health improves significant endothelial function improves significantly. So that's one where I think that as we look at the next five to 10 years in cardiology, I think that's an area that we can really improve on is getting more reliable, modern information that doesn't have an agenda about hormone replacement. I'm not saying that you'll feel like you're 17 again, but at the same time, you don't have to feel like you're 117 either. There's some happy medium in between and getting it within a normal range, like a normal functional range, because as we know, the functional medicine ranges really have to do with symptoms, not numbers. So where you're functioning correctly, as opposed to your number is therapeutic, but you're functioning correctly, that's great. And I think part of the reason why that doesn't happen is because it's so individual dependent. It's like artisanal work that most people don't want to do. We want to have this one-size-fits-all approach to medicine. But that's really where I think our community of functional practitioners is exceptional. We actually listen to patients. And when we ask, how are you feeling? We take a moment to actually listen to that response, right? And I think that's really what's going to drive a lot of that making people feel better. And I think it's particularly important with hormones. I've seen clinics where it's like a chop shop and people go in and they just get a bunch of pellets. And I had one woman that just got loaded up with pellets and just couldn't sleep for like weeks at a time. And I had to refer her to a surgeon to try and see if we could extract them because this place just pumped a bunch of pellets in her and it was just too much for her. So you have to do that follow through and see how people are doing. I'd always say, I guess maybe it might be my own bias, but start low and go high. It's always easier to add than it is to subtract when it comes to those sorts of therapeutics. Be cautious and just listen to your patient. That makes total sense. I think the message I, I think the average person probably needs to hear is worth checking. And if it's frankly abnormal, then normalizing it will likely improve your overall health, whether it's thyroid, whether it's testosterone, work with your doctor, but probably worth screening if you're going to do an advanced look at your overall health. Because profoundly low testosterone or profoundly low thyroid is definitely going to affect your cardiovascular health. I had low T. And I think it was when I was not so healthy. And I actually, I did compound lifts. So I started powerlifting. And something as simple as deadlifts and squats and then burning that visceral fat, changing my body comp, I normalized it. So as we talk about these hormone issues, there's natural things that you can do. I haven't read something about perineal sunning, which I think you have to have a very specific location for that. Like, you don't want to just like drop trowel in the middle of the beach, but as something that can boost, there are things that can be done. So again, don't just go and try to get medicines all the time. Like, let's get back to humaning and do things that humans do and see if that normalizes things. It's so crazy. My husband and I did a podcast years ago where he talked about the compound lifts and how they raise your growth hormone and help with testosterone and like, I actually didn't know that at the time. That kind of blew my mind that weightlifting could increase your hormones like that. It actually works. But I mean, humans were designed to like lift and move and do things. And if you're not lifting and moving and doing things, the human body is a thousand times smarter than the smartest doctor. 
And so if you're not engaging in movement and resistance training, the body's like, well, why bother making this stuff? I'm going to shift this energy to something else. I'm going to shift these synthetic pathways towards making XYZ. Don't waste time on that. But when you engage those systems and you're using them correctly, I mean, it's amazing how the body just wants to work. I want you to talk to us about exercise because you're a dad of triplets. You are interventional cardiologist, so a lot of time in the hospital. You're busy. And yet, you were a power lifter. I happen to know you like were up on the stage powerlifting at one point. What are some of your favorite exercise tips for somebody who is in the like couch stage of couch to 5K? How can they get started? So, you know, number one, start slow. So don't go out and run a marathon because your body just isn't ready for it. So you need to ramp up. And I feel like a lot of the January 1sters, people that, oh, I'm going to get in the gym and all that stuff, and they go super hard the first week of January. And then they're so sore and locked in that they can't get back. Like I just started weightlifting again. I had some health issues. And so I got back in the gym. And it is humbling. There's a fine line between humbling and humiliating when you start out again. But I'm approaching 50 here. And I'm like, I am not going to overlift and tweak an elbow. And then I'll be out for six weeks or something stupid. So have the discipline to be disciplined about your exercise. Number two, if you're not used to lifting or exercise, get a trainer, get an expert. I think that's so important because particularly as we talk about compound lifts, which are deadlifts and squats and, and overhead press, bench press, these sorts of lifts, the simple difference of having your hands here on the bar versus here on the bar versus here on the bar engages a different musculature, puts different strains and stresses on your shoulders, for instance, in a bench press, or if you're in a high bar squat or low bar squat and how you engage your core and where you're hinging, that affects your glutes and all sorts of different things. And these are very subtle things, even putting your feet here versus here and having them wider out. I mean, there's a lot of nuance to these things. So definitely getting an expert in. And then number three is just do something fun. My wife and I could not be more different when we go to the gym. For me, I just put my headphones on. For me, lifting is a meditation because it's me, my breath, and the bar. Those are the, those are the only things that I have to worry about. I don't like talking to people. My kids, when they see me at the gym, they're like, dad, why do you look so angry at the gym? I just like, that's my me time. That's what I enjoy doing. My wife, you put her into the squat rack and that's just not fun for her. So she likes being on the treadmill or doing other lifts or machines and things like that. So I think the important thing is find what's fun for you. Maybe like I had a couple that they were in their 90s and they did Lindy Hop. So swing dancing still, that was their fun. And they're so cute. They did it together and they showed me their videos and stuff. It was lovely, but that was their fun. So I think one of the things when it comes to exercise is don't divorce movement and joy. They should come together. So if for you, that's walking outside with your dog, if that's swimming in the ocean, if that's walking the aisles of a store, whatever it might be, do something fun then you're more likely to do it again. Because if you're forced to do some mind-numbingly boring workout, you're not going to engage. You're not going to do it again. I think that's great advice. And I love the joy part. And I think for the people at home who just like, you're not self-motivated to exercise. You weren't an athlete. You'd never like to go to the gym by yourself. But if you are others motivated, I think one way to trick yourself into working out is to do it with someone or to do it for someone. So I feel like a lot of my moms that I would talk to in practice, they just like, the gym wasn't their thing. They'd never been. But they would think about their kids. And they'd be like, okay, well, I can bring my kid to the gym and learn how to lift with them because they're interested in it. Or it'll be good bonding for us. Or I can go play basketball with my kids for 30 minutes. 
Or maybe I'll take the grandmom of the family. Like maybe we'll go over, we'll take her dog for a walk to get the dog exercise. So for them, if it was about others, they would do it when they couldn't do it for themselves. And then I think a lot of times when we start an exercise routine, we're like, what can I do every day? And it's like, don't do that. If you're moving zero days a week, pick one thing to do the first week. Just one. Start slower than an amp up pyramid from there. We don't want to obsess about doing everything because you end up doing nothing. So I like what you said. Start with something. I get nervous about mom guilt here. So I'm going to put a big hashtag mom guilt thing on here. But there was actually a study that showed that one of the best predictors of children's health is the degree of maternal exercise that they watch. So I think that there's this generational modeling that happens when you see your parents exercise. And for me, it's important. It's funny, I came the other day from the gym in shorts and I was just having dinner with the kiddos. And then I realized that I think in my life, I've seen my dad in shorts maybe twice ever. And working out was like never a thing for him. But because I'm motivated, we've got a garage gym and all that stuff. You know, the girls are like, oh, dad, can we work out with you? And I think it's awesome to be able to give that gift of motivation generationally is a hard thing to break sometimes. So yeah, absolutely. Parents, model after your kids, do stuff at home. Calisthenics, you don't have to have thousands of dollars worth of equipment to do an air squat. There's so much that you can do that's so beneficial without having to invest millions of dollars in equipment and things. Just move, do something. But now there's so many videos online about how to do this and do this yoga and that body weight exercises and all that stuff. Cost is even a barrier now. So it's really just time. As we get back to one of the four things, fourth is time, is that nobody that I've ever met has an hour of their day where they're sitting around I wish I had something to do. You know, I'm just going to sit here and do nothing for Like rarely do people have that. Maybe if you're in a layover at an airport or something, but you have to create that time, invest that time because investing in yourself has dividends. And as a cardiologist, I see it. You can't be awesome in your 70s and 80s unless you're doing a lot of really great stuff in your 40s and 50s. So now is the time to set those habits and continue them. Don't just be a January 1st or being in the in the gym the first week. Make them part of your everyday routine. And that's really where I think people get the best outcomes. We had an interview with one of the founders of Smart Fit Girls, who's a PhD down in your neck of the woods. Actually, she's in Southern California. And it's like this 10-week program where they teach middle school girls to lift and they teach program. It's so cool. And you can have a chapter near you. There's so many ways to do this. But I loved hearing that you were a power lifter. Well, I know that my voice probably makes me sound like I'm six feet, 13 inches tall, but at 5'5", five, five, there's not a, still not a lot of sports that you can play. I grew up in Indiana, so I was a basketball player up until I think probably about fifth or sixth grade when I stayed here and everybody kept going and going. And I was just like, where did everybody go? And so powerlifting was one of those sports that I just fell into it evolved from a CrossFit obsession that I had, a brief affair with CrossFit that I had, and just realized that the body mechanics that I had, so we, I mean, we we're talking about the nuances, so like femur length and tibular length, the bones of your legs, the length and the this and that, I mean, that all is in the equation of the physics of your ability to hinge and lever and all these things. And so it just worked for me. I remember at, actually the first time I considered powerlifting was at my buddy's CrossFit gym. And I was paired up with this guy, my friend Bill, he's probably six foot two or something. And we we're doing front squats and he maxed out and I just kept going and going and going 
and going or just adding on weight, adding on weight. And then somebody was like, you know, you should think about powerlifting. And I had no idea what that was. I'm like, I'm not going to wear a Speedo and walk around and spray tans and all that stuff. That's just not part of my plan. But yeah, it was a great sport. But I'll tell you a story was that we have a lifter here in Southern California who I think was 82 years old and she was competing. I mean, she was like the only person in her group. And the absolute cutest thing was that she at the competition was just trying to bench press the Olympic bar, which is 45 pounds. And I tell you, you would have thought you were at the Super Bowl with how loud everyone was cheering for her to get that bar up. So I think a lot of people, maybe a plug for powerlifting, but a lot of people think that it's just these big muscle-bound people, but it's such an amazingly supportive community because really you're not competing against anybody else. You're really just competing against gravity. That's how most of us look at it. And don't be afraid to resistance train. And you don't have to squat 100 pounds or a million pounds or whatever, but even like rubber bands and, and resistance, that builds lean muscle mass which I think is hugely important when we start to talk about body composition because weight is an imperfect measure of health. I mean, I think particularly, I was just interviewed for a news outlet a few days ago about this, um, is that we really need to get away from using weight as any sort of marker of anything. And now that we can measure body composition, lean muscle, adiposity, visceral fat, all of these things relatively easily, I think that's something that needs to be focused on a lot more. And again, IFM in the training has this great algorithm that shows like the heavily muscled person because with BMI as an imperfect measurement, if you're heavily muscled, you're considered obese. But how to differentiate between like well-muscled, actually overweight, skinny fat, normal, all these things. So I think that's a very important thing to do. But yeah, but seeing all these 50 people cheering at the top of their lungs for this woman to bench press an empty bar was just one of those gives me goosebumps. It was just one of the funnest moments of my life. I tell everyone that's what I'm training for. I'm like, I am training so that I stay fit long enough to make it to the like 80 and above group and compete then. That's like me trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. I think I have to be 10,000 years old to be in the age group that my marathon time would qualify me. So I'm waiting for that. I highly recommend powerlifting. We talk about this a lot on the podcast, but like it's a more relaxed sport than I think people realize. Like you walk into powerlifting gym and people will lift something heavy three to five times and then they're resting for like a while. Yeah, I used to call cardio sets and he said that was more than three lifts. So, but when you're prioritizing strength, you have to do high weights, low reps, and then you have to give your mitochondria right, time to recover and to create that ATP so that you can maximize your next lift. And probably of the exercise that you can do in powerlifting is probably great for mitogenesis, I'd guess, too. Yeah, I think we who counsel people about metabolic health, I love when we can talk to people about adding muscle versus focusing on losing fat because so many people think, well, now I got to get on the treadmill and I got to not eat. And I got to starve myself so I can get rid of this fat. And usually it's the opposite. It's about putting in the work at the gym to build muscle, to build bone, shifting what you're eating, usually to consume more protein and fiber and complex carbohydrates than you might have been consuming less highly processed foods. And you just see your body composition change in this way that's really cool and rewarding. It just is awesome to be able to just lift 400 pounds and have people look at you in the gym different and stuff. And if you're not there, you can get there. Someone's thinking, 400 pounds. So I maxed out on deadlifts at 410 or something like that. But that took me about two or three years to get there. And what I love about it is that we're talking about goals and exercises. I think it's important to have a goal and just an unyielding, like, 
how many times I wanted to stop, but 405, which for those of you who don't live, that's four of those big plates on the side. That was just my goal because for some reason I thought that was awesome and nothing stopped me. I mean, I definitely had days where I did better than others, but just continue and it's like with anything, success is inevitable if you put the time and effort in. So similarly to metabolic health and as we talk about maybe body composition shifting and stuff is that if you do the work, it's going to happen, but you have to do the work. You can't pay somebody else to do the reps for you. I can't pay someone to exercise for me and expect that I would have the result. You have to do the time and it has to be a priority. You have to make it a priority. Yeah, it's so true. Well, I want people to know where to find you because I'm sure everyone's fallen in love with you in the last hour and they're thinking, how do I get Dr. B to be my doctor? Tell us about Well 12 and yeah, where folks can get more. We talked at the top of the hour about this unfortunate discrepancy between clinical practice and how we're supposed to practice, really kind of focusing on those three to six months of diet and lifestyle changes that honestly, most conventional trained physicians and doctors just don't have that skill set. And so I created the Well 12 program. It's a 12-week wellness journey. You know, I'm not super imaginative, so that's where the name comes from, Well 12. But what we do is focus on three factors. So diet, stress, and sleep. So if you can optimize those three things, so much gets better. So much improvement happens. But we give that structure. I've created this structure, this framework. You're monitored by coaches and you're logging in your foods. Everybody gets a wearable device so that we can track your sleep. I'm a huge fan, of course, as a cardiologist of heart rate variability. That's a whole other podcast that we could probably create at some point in time. But essentially, that's a balance between that sympathetic, the rev up fight or flight system and the parasympathetic cool down system. So where that heart rate variability sits is a metric of how much sympathetic or parasympathetic tone you have. And teaching people how do you optimize stress? How do you use breath work, for instance, to optimize when you can't sleep or if you're stressed out? What are the mindset shifts that we can have? And then getting back to diet, this cardiometabolic low inflammatory diet. So reducing the body's burden of inflammation, optimizing cardiometabolic and really mitochondrial health to unlock the body. And uh, the program is now over a year old and the results have been absolutely amazing, all without tons of supplements and all that stuff, just really teaching people what to do. My most valuable player here just reached out to me earlier in the week. He is now down 130, 140 pounds, something like that, off of seven medicines. He's on three diabetes meds, three blood pressure meds, and a cholesterol medicine. And all of his numbers normalized. He did the work. He did the thing. But I mean, he is unrecognizable. In fact, he comes out surfing with me when we're not getting inundated by rains that we are getting right now in Southern California. But I mean, his life has totally changed. Another woman just reached out to me and she said that she was suffering from long COVID, which the functional medicine community kind of understands there's a lot of inflammation gone wild, basically. And she was getting tested for Alzheimer's dementia and did the program and we dropped her inflammation. I think her CRP dropped by like 50 or 60%. And now her brain is functioning again. And she can't believe that she was worried that she was getting this diagnosis of Alzheimer's and thyroid and metabolic, all these things get better, but without medicines. And for as technology forward as I've been for the first half of my career, I think on the back end of things here, I really just want to get things done naturally for folks. And look, I'm not saying nobody needs medicines ever. I'm not saying that at all, but let's optimize the things that we can optimize and really get people healthy without medicine. And that's, again, why I feel I'm so in love with functional medicine. So the website is www.well12, that's W-E-L-L-1-2, 
well12.health. So well12.health. And you can pop on there, learn a little bit more, join the newsletter. If you're interested, you schedule a consult with me and, and I run through exactly what it is. But for all the people I've saved at two in the morning with their heart attacks and all the 90-year-old people, I was able to put a heart valve in and they're walking out of the hospital the next day. Really, the most joy I get as a healer has been from this program because it's not just giving people better health, but giving them the habits so that that health is going to be sustained. And I get goosebumps when I talk about it because it's just been absolutely amazing. Like in my own family, we did it and it's completely changed my kids' eating patterns. We were on a road trip somewhere. And as we all know, road trip food with little kids, it's nothing healthy. And my wife busted out these red bell peppers. And one of my daughters from the back seat was like, you didn't tell me you had bell peppers. Pass those back here. And that would never have been a statement that we would have heard of before. So as you think about the generational impact, as we were talking about before of exercise, but the generational impact of diet, if I'm eating healthy, I instill those healthy eating habits in my children. Then just think about how my grandchildren or great-grandchildren are going to benefit. If you think about the epigenetic modifications that are happening for my children, the health habits that I'm instilling in them is going to help three generations from now. I will never be alive to see those kids born unless I get to 10,000 years of age and I'm running that Boston Marathon with my six-hour marathon time. But this is what needs to happen. This is what healthcare needs to be. We need to actually focus on the health part of healthcare and actually giving people the tools to become healthy. And that's not medicines. That's let's optimize our diet. Let's optimize our lifestyle. Let's do things that are going to be meaningful, impactful, and sustainable. Because what happens if you lose your insurance coverage, for instance, and you can't afford a medicine? You're going to suffer. But nobody's ever taking broccoli away. Asparagus ain't going anywhere anytime soon. But learning how to eat correctly for yourself, because everyone's a little bit different. And how do we optimize sleep? How do we optimize stress? And then slowly then, once that's kind of set, how do we incorporate movement into our daily exercise and our daily routine? So it's just been amazing. I tell people it's almost like the playbook for your body that you never got. But it's remarkable. And I just can't wait to get as many people as I can on this journey to being better humans. I'm so grateful that you started Well 12 for the world. And I'm also so grateful that you're teaching our practitioners too. So if you are not a clinician, go be Dr. B's patient at Well 12. If you are a clinician, come learn from him in the IFM Bootcamp. We're going to have some more opportunities for you to learn from him coming up at Rupa soon. Thank you, Dr. B, for everything you're doing to help people heal and thrive. Thank you for existing. Keep up what you're doing and just continue to be awesome. Thanks, Dr. B. We will talk to you soon. All right, take care. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we appreciate it so much. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.